draws our series of Peter the Disciple to a close. And over the last 13 weeks, we've journeyed the highs and lows of Peter's life as a disciple of Jesus. Peter has observed countless healing miracles, including that of his own mother-in-law. He has courageously stepped out of the boat and walked on the water towards Jesus. He's declared Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of the living God. He has witnessed Jesus transfigured into his heavenly glory on the mountain with Moses and Elijah. He had his feet washed by Jesus in the upper room. Peter faced the displeasure of having Jesus predict that he would deny him three times. He fell asleep in Gethsemane when Jesus needed him awake. He was full of defensiveness in the garden when he sliced off the soldier's ear. He was full of fear and doubt uh, when he was overcome in the courtyard and sadly denied Jesus three times. After his resurrection, Jesus appeared to Peter, uh, reassuring him that he had indeed risen. I trust that this has been an encouragement to you, that this series has been an encouragement to your discipleship with Jesus. And I really do encourage you to consider coming along to next Monday night's Upper Room and actually sharing about how God has impacted you, how he has spoken to you through this series and how we can actually encourage one another in that and hold each other somewhat accountable to that. Well, our study of Peter began with Jesus calling Peter, inviting him to follow me. This took place at Galilee by the seaside after a futile night's fishing. In John 21, many of these events are recreated as Peter comes um, full circle to the place where Jesus first called him and his journey as a disciple began. I wonder what Peter was feeling at this point, at this moment. Not only once, but twice we read that Jesus has appeared to his disciples and on neither occasion has Jesus addressed the elephant in the room, if you like, with Peter. We all know that awful feeling you get in your stomach when you know things are just not right with another person you care deeply about. Perhaps you've had a fight, a misunderstanding. You let a word slip that you wish you could take back, but it's out there and the damage is done. You probably lose sleep over it and there's a sense that until this thing is not resolved, you're going to still continue to feel unsettled in your gut. And when you know that you're going to be in the same room as that person and the issue hasn't yet been resolved, you feel anxious, right? There's a sense of just being a little bit on edge, feeling a little bit uncertain, a little bit uncomfortable, particularly not knowing how is this person going to treat me? What is the engagement or the interaction going to be like? I'm describing a universal situation here that all of us have experienced from time to time. And I think that at this point in time, perhaps Peter is somewhat in that boat. He sees Jesus for the third time and maybe he's wondering, is this going to be the moment that this issue is going to be addressed? So consider the place that Peter is in as we come to today's passage in John 21. John 21 verse 1. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to the disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, 
Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. Seven disciples are together. They are at a loss as to what to do with themselves. Think about the events that they have witnessed over the last few weeks. Incredible. And at his first appearance to the disciples, as recorded in John's Gospel, chapter 20, 21 to 23, Jesus had already appeared to them and he'd already given them instructions, if you like. We read, again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. The disciples had been given a mission and received the Holy Spirit. Now it was up to them. There is a sense that they are on their own. I mean, they're not really on their own because Jesus has given them his indwelling spirit to lead and guide them. But physically, Jesus was no longer going to be with them. They'd spent three years in his presence and their discipleship had orientated around following a person, walking with Jesus. And he had prepared them for this very moment. But they found themselves understandably quite disorientated. It'd be a little bit like a kid transitioning from the training wheels to no training wheels. You know, kids riding bike with training wheels, like Andrew looks at Brendan on a bike with no training wheels, and he knows, right, that that's where he's heading, that that's what's coming. But at this point in his bicycle uh, journey, his bicycle riding journey, he has training wheels on, but they're not forever, right? They actually set you up for a lifetime, hopefully, of enjoyable cycling. Isn't that right, Ross? And, uh, and, and this is a little bit like what Jesus was doing with his disciples. They had three years with him. In a sense, the disciples had their training wheels on. But Jesus was, was never going to stay with them forever. He was always going back to heaven. That was always part of the plan. And so he very intentionally spent those three years on earth with them, teaching them everything that he could about the Father and the kingdom of God, uh, preparing them to actually go out and be witnesses for him on their own. And, you know, right throughout his ministry, Jesus had been preparing his disciples. And now we see in John 20, he arrives, he pours his Holy Spirit on them, he gives them a mission and basically says, go for it. And, uh, you know, it's like Jesus gives them a push and they're sort of on the bike and there's no training wheels on and then they kind of stop and they don't know what to do. And, uh, and, and so they go back to what was familiar, fishing. And we read in verse 3, I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And the rest of the disciples who were with him said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat and they caught nothing that night. Now the others think this is a pretty good idea to join Peter. But it's a very frustrating time because they didn't catch anything. And Peter, no doubt, is left feeling defeated after an unproductive, fruitless night of fishing. This only adds to his own sense of self-inadequacy. I mean, he was a fisherman by trade. So already he's feeling as though he's failed as a disciple. <laughs> he goes back to what he knows 
And after a fruitless, unproductive night of fishing, there's probably a feeling of, I'm even failing at that which I know, which that which is familiar. Not in a great place. Now, it's been dark, and we read in the Scriptures that it is dawn, that light is emerging. Uh, a very appropriate time for the person who said, I am the light of the world, to appear. So at dawn, as light breaks, Jesus is on the beach. And uh, there's a, a sense, um, you read in verse 4, early in the morning Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, have you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net to the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish. As I mentioned, for Peter to go a whole night without catching anything as a skilled professional fisherman would have been most discouraging. And then all of a sudden, Jesus appears. And upon hearing that they'd been unsuccessful to catch their fish, invites them to cast the net onto the other side, and instantaneously, the net is overflowing with fish. Here is Jesus, their Lord, their friend, their God. The same man who had miraculously fed 5,000 was now back to his old tricks again. Now, the significance in this moment is obvious. On their own, the disciples won't be able to do a whole lot. But with Jesus... The possibilities are endless. The ministry, if you like, of catching fish with Jesus will be significant if they partner with him. Now, at this point, the disciple Jesus loved, who uh, we can't be certain but most accept is John, it's like he leans over to his mate Peter and says, he's back. And, uh, and then in verse 7, the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. Peter at this point is unrestrained. He can no longer contain the built-up emotion that he has been carrying around with him for over a week. So he hurriedly uh, puts on something and plunges head first towards Jesus. This is now no step in the water. This is a plunge, a head over heels immersion of oneself. Peter is unashamedly diving into Jesus, if you like. He charges forward towards the mercy of God. He's not running away in shame, he's running towards in mercy. It's hard not to get caught up in the emotion of this very moment. Meanwhile, the other disciples followed in the boat, towing the, the net full of fish, for, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. This is fascinating. Jesus appears at dawn in the light of the darkness, once the darkness has subsided, and he is preparing them breakfast around a charcoal fire. Strangely, the only time that the word charcoal fire appears in the entire Bible is when Peter is in the courtyard 
denying Jesus around a charcoal fire. It's amazing. There's a sense that Jesus has recreated not only a scene, but a smell that takes Peter back to that place. Peter had insisted emphatically that he would remain loyal to Jesus no matter what. I'm sure Peter's intentions were honourable. It's just that in the heat of a very uncomfortable moment, it all became unstuck and Peter's human frailty won the day. Now, in the text, it says that Jesus had already prepared the breakfast. There was already fish on the barbie, if you like. But then we read in verse 10, Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Is this a sense of maybe Jesus had, didn't quite have enough food for the disciples? He needed a few more fish? I don't think so. There's a sense that perhaps Jesus is symbolically saying, work with me, partner with what I am doing. I'm going to involve you in the work and the ministry. You see, it's never our mission. It's always God's mission. And he invites us to participate in what he is already doing. So whether it's something as simple as cooking a fish over heated coals or serving the poor or proclaiming the gospel message, we only get to do these things because God invites us to partner with him in his work of transforming lives and bringing God's kingdom to bear here on earth. Jesus said to them in verse 12, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. And Jesus serves the disciples breakfast, which is clearly reminiscent of the miraculous feeding of the 5,000, allowing in this moment his actions of fish and bread uh, to remind the disciples of his sovereignty, that he is still very much in control, that he can still do these wonderful miracles, uh, that even though he is going to be with the Father, he will still remain with them and uh, enable them to continue the ministry of which he had given them charge for. Now, it's at this point that John carefully chooses to remind his readers that this is the third time that Jesus has appeared to his disciples. It's as if now, on his third appearance, Jesus is going to raise Peter up. Peter has been almost dead in his sense of guilt and shame and uncertainty. Uh, Jesus didn't address it with him the first time. He didn't address it with him the second time. And he's now going to raise him up the third time from the act of denying his Lord. John is a very clever uh, author, the way that he puts all this together, isn't he? When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, 
Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. After they'd finished their breakfast, Jesus takes Peter aside for a quiet chat. And I can imagine that for Peter, there's probably this dual sense of relief and also anxiety that maybe they were going to address the issue. Now, interestingly, at this point, Jesus chooses to refer to Peter, not as Peter, but as Simon, son of John. Now, this was Peter's post-Jesus name. It's as if Jesus is saying, we're going to start all over again. Then Jesus poses a pretty searching question. Do you love me more than these? There appears to be a bit of uncertainty around what Jesus was actually referring to at this point in time. He could have been, uh, he could have been pointing at his disciples. Peter, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these followers, these friends? Um, he could have been pointing at the boat and, and the fishing nets, his occupation. Do you love me more than these? At any rate, it's a question of loyalty. Who does Peter truly love? Who has Peter's heart? Jesus saw the leadership qualities and potential in Peter, but he wanted to make sure where Peter's loyalty lied. The three times that Jesus asks Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Of course correlates to Peter's threefold denial of Jesus. And at this point, Jesus is so gentle with Peter. There's no guilt or shame or disappointment in his voice or comments. There's no, I told you so. He doesn't even raise the fact that Peter denied him. In fact, Jesus does something brilliant. He allows Peter to demonstrate the loyalty he so desperately wants to show to Jesus by inviting him into the task of shepherding. Uh, Jesus graciously gives Peter, at this moment, a fresh commission. So when, when Jesus had first called Peter three years ago, in potentially the same location, under the same circumstances, Jesus said, follow me and I will make you a fisher of man. Now, in this instance, three years have passed, and it's as if we have a new opportunity to start again, but it's a different commission this time. It's no longer come and catch fish. It's feed my sheep. Leadership. Leadership. This is an incredible moment. And you might recall, if from your knowledge of John's Gospel, uh, in John chapter 10, there's this great chapter about Jesus referring to himself as the great shepherd of the sheep. Wow. So now, Peter, knowing that Jesus has referred to himself as the shepherd, uh, Jesus is now inviting Peter 
to likewise be a shepherd and feed his sheep. Do you see the grace in this moment? It's so moving and so beautiful. Finally, Jesus predicts the cost that this will involve. Ultimately, it will cost Peter his very life. In verse 18, Jesus says, Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the type of death which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Tradition has it that Peter was crucified upside down. What an awful and humiliating way to die. Uh, Yet Jesus confirms that Peter's death would actually bring glory to God. Again, Jesus is likening Peter to himself. Jesus' death brought glory to God. Peter's death would also bring glory to God. These two words, follow me, are significant. These are the same two words that Peter used to call Peter into ministry in the first place. He's now reissuing them. Peter has had a good taste of what it will mean to follow Jesus. He's seen where it leads. He's seen where discipleship gets you and ends up. And Jesus has predicted to Peter how he would die. Herein lays lies the great paradox of Christian leadership. It is only through following that one can be qualified to lead. Peter has been a follower. And Jesus is now tasking him with leadership. Peter answered the call and would go on to become one of the most significant leaders that the church of Jesus Christ has ever known. His passionate sermons would inspire thousands to give their hearts and lives to God. His close walk with Jesus and his reliance on the Holy Spirit enabled him to be the vessel of many miracles. Peter was only ever the leader he was because of the follower he was. After Jesus had reinstated Peter, his calling to leadership was sure. He faithfully followed Jesus and Jesus equipped him to become the dynamic, transformative leader that he was. And I look forward uh, in term two, later this year in June, we're going to start. We're going to come back to Peter and we're going to examine Peter's life, not as a disciple, but as an apostle in Acts 1 to 12. And we look forward to coming to that together. Jesus called and qualified Peter for the task. Jesus is still calling and qualifying men and women today to partner with him in God's work of transforming lives. He is still inviting people today to follow him, issuing the invitation to become part of his mission that deeply cares for the lost that champions the cause of the downcast, that releases captives free from the bondage of sin and darkness into the goodness and grace of forgiveness and light. It is a mission that values people for their intrinsic uh, worth as human beings created in God's image. It is a mission that seeks to sow seeds of hope 
faith and love into the very fabric of society. It is a mission that ultimately seeks to bring God's kingdom reign to bear here on earth as it is in heaven. Do you consider yourself or would you like to be part of this mission? The question and the invitation then to you is the same as it was to Peter. Follow me. Amen. I wasn't planning on going with an Anglican slant today with the passing of the peace, but I do have a corporate communal prayer, a responsive, well, it's not a responsive prayer, but I would rather than just praying for you, let's all pray together as a response to um, today's message and more broadly the sermon series on Peter. You might be familiar with this prayer. It is a beautiful prayer, one I use frequently in my own personal devotions. It is the prayer of Francis, St. Francis of Assisi. We're going to say it together. Thanks, Dave. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive It is in pardoning that we are pardoned and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen.